theyeshiva.net. At many seders, people often ask the following question, which is a very good question, and that is we open up the Haggadah with the following statement. After we make Kiddush, and we drink the first cup of wine, and then we wash our hands, and we eat a vegetable that's dipped in water, which we call karpas, and then we break a matzah, we put away a piece of matzah for the afikoiman, or somebody steals it, and then we come to the part of the Seder, of the Haggadah, known as Magid. And in many Haggadahs, you will have Kaddish, Urchatz, Karpas, and then Yachatz, and then Magid. Magid literally means to tell the story, to relate the narrative. Vihigada the Torah says you should tell the story to your child. That's called Magid. Magid means we tell the story, we share the narrative of our past, the narrative of our present, and the narrative of our future. And Magid begins with the following declaration or statement that everybody says at this point people are still awake and you usually have the participation of the entire audience. This is the bread of poverty which our forefathers have eaten in the land of Egypt. We also invite Anybody who needs a meal. Kol dechfin, yeseviyechel, kol dechrich, yeseviyifsach. Kol dechfin, whoever wants could come and join us for the meal. Whoever needs could come and join us for the Passover festivities. And then we say, hashata hacha. This year we're still here. But l'shana haba ba'aradi Yisrael, next year in the land of Israel. Hashata Avdin, this year we are slaves, Lashana Haban, next year Bnei Chayrin. We are people of freedom, people of liberty, of emancipation, free women and men. Then we come to the Manishtana, the children, or whoever asks the questions in your house, ask the Manishtana, Halayla Azemi Kal And when they finish the four questions, we begin the response, a long response, a long answer. Avadim hayinu we have been slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. What is that first opening paragraph doing there in the Haggadah? Hey, lachma anya. We all know that the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the story of the Exodus, is supposed to be said as an answer to a question. Major focus of Pesach is questions and answers. Children ask, and the adults respond, or think about the questions, respond to the questions. Shailis uchuvais. Ki yishal chavincha, your child will ask. Which is why the Seder table is structured around questions and answers. Which is why we don't just tell the story, we first ask the questions, and then we respond to the questions. And we could all understand the logic of that on two levels. First of all, whenever you're responding to a question, the the response is heard in a different way. When your child asks you a question throughout the entire year, now is your opportunity to teach something very significant. If I come to you and I say, I want to tell you something, you may not be interested. But if you ask me a question, means there's curiosity. Now I have an opportunity 
to give an answer, and the answer will be internalized in a completely different way. Which is why whenever your child asks you a question, take pause, because this is the greatest moment for education. Education happens best, not when we initiate the conversation, but when the child initiates the conversation, and now you have an opportunity actually to say something meaningful and significant, which gives you an opportunity not only to answer the question technically, but to actually give a lesson that could come about, that can be communicated in a much profounder way as a result of the question. That's value number one. Value number two is questions represents the fact that a child learns that the bedrock of freedom is to ask questions. Slaves don't ask questions. Free people ask questions. The definition of a question is challenging the status quo on every level, intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, and practically. That's what a question is. A question is why. Why means that I don't just accept the reality. I ask why. What other reality may substitute this reality? What other reality ought to take over the present reality? Slaves never ask questions. They embrace the status quo. I am a slave. I will be a slave. Free people ask questions. That's the sign of freedom. You ask questions. You're not stuck in any given paradigm or reality. It can be challenged, it can be raised. There's growth, there's an opportunity for transformation. So questions are a very deep component of Judaism. Because Judaism is based on free people serving a free God. God, A free God wanted free people serving him. There was a famous Nobel Jewish Prize recipient, his name was Isidore Rabi. I think he won the Nobel Prize for Physics. And they once asked him how he has risen to such great academic heights and successes. And he said, it was my mother's questions when I came home from school. And he explained, he said, we all got off the bus. And all the mothers would turn to their children and say, what did you learn today in school? And my mother would turn to me and say, Isidore, did you ask a good question today in school? And that made all the difference. So questions are really the very powerful tool of education. It means there's always room to grow, to figure out, to discover, to explore. The slave tells himself or herself, this is just the way it is. The free person says, maybe it could be different. Maybe I could look at it differently. I don't find myself in a situation I could put myself in a situation and then put myself in a new situation. Questions on a third level also represent confidence. People whose convictions are based on blindness, on blind submission, are always terrified by questions because questions may create cracks in that uh, delicately secure foundation. But people who have confidence and are secure are never afraid of questions. When you have answers, you're never terrified by questions. So it's very interesting that the, the holiday that celebrates the Jewish people emerging into peoplehood, our sages, based on the texts of the Chumash understood, should be done through questions and answers.
Whenever you have answers, you don't have to be afraid of questions. A religion, a faith, a heritage that is based on falsehoods, on myths, traditions, heritages, uh, religions that are based on myth are terrified by questions. Because if you ask too many questions, what are you going to discover? But anything that is based on truth, absolute truth, must never ever be afraid of questions. On the contrary, questions only give us an opportunity to crystallize, to clarify, to excavate, to go deeper. This doesn't mean that every question in life has an answer. Absolutely not. There are many things in life that remain mysterious and unfathomable. But it means that truth is never afraid of questions because it's never contradicting reality. And it's never contradicting what is true. And that's why we don't just tell the story. We ask our children to stand up or sit down and ask questions. And it's not just those four questions. Those four questions are the paradigm questions. It's the freedom to be able to give children and the child within each and every one of us. We're all children at heart. We should discover the child inside of us to ask our own questions. And these questions are usually not only intellectual questions. There are deep emotional questions to ask those questions. And the response always comes to those questions. That makes a lot of sense. But I would expect then the Haggadah to start right there. The children ask and we tell the story. And then we do the traditions, the mitzvahs, the matzah, the mara, the kairach, the charoises, the egg, the meal, etc. But there is this paragraph, very strange paragraph that comes in right in the opening of the Haggadah before everything. And in many Haggadahs, the word Magid says before that paragraph, which means that's the beginning of the story. And what do we do in that paragraph? We put together, we join together themes and ideas that seem completely disjointed. First of all, we start talking about the matzah. This is the bread of poverty which our forefathers have eaten in the land of Egypt. How does that come in here? Are you going to eat the matzah now? No. Later, you're going to eat the matzah. That's where you should talk about it. And in fact, there's a section in the Haggadah towards the end where we say, matzah zu, this matzah that we eat, why do we eat it? Because our forefathers didn't have time to allow the dough to ferment as the Egyptians were rushing them to leave. Pare woke up in the middle of the night screaming, get out of here. And throughout the entire time, the Egyptians were pleading and beseeching and demanding that the Jewish people leave at once from Egypt. And therefore they couldn't allow their doughs to deferment, to inflate, to become leaven. They had to immediately take the dough and place it in the oven allow it to bake fast, and thus it turned into matzah, because they needed to leave immediately. They were expelled from Egypt. So that we explain later in the Haggadah. That's why we're eating this matzah. And then we actually eat the matzah. We wash, and we make a bracha. We make a bracha, we eat the matzah. But here there's a paragraph. This is the bread of poverty that our forefathers have eaten in the land of Egypt. And then we move on. What's the message here? What's the point here? We're not yet dealing with the matzah. What is more strange and even more perplexing is how we identify this matzah and how it contradicts what we're going to say about the matzah later in the Seder. Now we say this is the bread of poverty. 
which our forefathers have eaten in the land of Egypt. What do you mean they have eaten this matzah in the land of Egypt? Later we're going to say in the Haggadah that the reason we're eating this matzah is because they were leaving Egypt and they didn't have time to allow the dough to ferment, lahachmetz, to become leaven, and therefore they had to bake matzah. In other words, the matzah represents emancipation. It represents their departure. It represents their liberation. Why don't we say that in the beginning? In the beginning, we tell a completely different story. Why are we talking about the matzah now? And when we're talking about the matzah, we talk about the matzah as the food that they ate in the land of Egypt. Not when, not the matzah that they ate when they were leaving Egypt and when they left Egypt. That's the food they took with them into the desert. Even the suggestion, the words, this is the bread of poverty that they ate in the land of Egypt. What do you mean? Was this the bread that they ate in the land of Egypt regularly? They did eat matzah the night before they left Egypt as part of the liberation process. The night of Pesach, they had a seder, they sacrificed the Pesach offering, they ate matzah and more, but the next day they left already. This was the night when they were celebrating their exodus from Egypt, even though they were still there but it was the last moments of their stay. The Avud Raham quotes Rabbeinu Yehoisaf, who quotes the Ezra, that when he was taken, he was abducted. The Ezra was abducted, and he was taken, he said, for a time he was a slave in India. He was abducted, kidnapped, and brought to India, the Ezra. That's what Avud Raham brings. And he says, there he saw that they were feeding the slaves matzah. And the reason they were feeding the slaves matzah is because he said matzah takes longer to digest than regular bread, than chametz. And this was a way of feeding the slaves less food because it takes longer to digest, so therefore it could sustain them for a longer time. So the Heaven Ezra says the Jews were slaves in Egypt. They ate matzah throughout their slavery. Their masters fed them matzah. That's what he says. The Sepharno gives a whole different explanation. He says when the Jews were in Egypt, they were always eating matzah because they didn't have time to let their dough ferment because their masters enslaved them and they whipped them back to work. So you couldn't sit and allow your dough to ferment. There's no time to prepare your meals. They had to always eat matzah as slaves. So here we have two interpretations. Even Ezra and the Sepharno explained this novel idea that actually when the Jews were slaves in Egypt, they were always eating matzah. Because that's what slaves do. Slaves used to be fed with matzah for what, either because it takes longer to digest, so you give them less. You can give them less food, and they weren't interested in feeding their slaves. Or number two, they did not have the time to spend with their food. They had to do it all fast and get back to work. Free people can eat chametz. Slaves have to eat matzah. This is how they explain the opening of that God, the Heilach Ma'anya, the Achalu Avasana Be'ara de Mitzrayim, when they were in Egypt as slaves. They ate matzah, and this is called the bread of poverty. Besides, but yet besides the question that it's completely inconsistent with the matzah we're going to talk about later, and we identify the matzah later in the Haggadah as the matzah of freedom, the matzah that we baked in this way because we were being rushed out from slavery. Why would we be so inconsistent? It's, we're talking about the same bread, the same matzah, hey lachmanya or ha lachmanya, whatever the version of your Haggadah is, hey or ha. It's this bread, this matzah later in the Haggadah, it assumes a different identity here, it has this identity. In addition, as many commentators point out, it's very difficult to assume that the Haggadah would somehow 
know that we are supposed to figure out on our own that the Jews ate matzah all their years in Egypt. When the Torah literally does not say it, there's no intimation for it, not in Chumash, not in Gemara, not in Medrash, not in Mishnah, that the Jews actually throughout their years of slavery and bondage in Egypt ate matzah. The Ebenezer learned it in India. The Sepharno is using a specul- speculating but apparently there's, this compl- there's, there's, no, there's no scriptural basis for it or Talmudic basis for it, which is why it's a difficult interpretation that this is what the Haggadah meant. And if the Haggadah really meant it, throughout the Haggadah he always references his statements with biblical sources. Throughout the Haggadah he'll say they did this and this, Kamash and Nemer, like it says. There's no, there's no source for this. That's the first part of the paragraph. When you get to the second part of the paragraph, it gets also strange. We spoke about the bread for two seconds. This is the bread they ate in Egypt. Okay. We're not eating it, but this is it. Next. What's next? Whoever wants should come and eat. One second. We're now inviting the guest. Everybody's sitting at the Seder table. Everybody has their seat. And you know it took an hour and a half to make somewhat order in this house. The kaitas, the matzahs, the lebedek, and freilich. Yankee and Yoeli got into a fight. Sarla and Chaya got into another fight. But they're finally sitting. Wait! We're looking for guests. This is when you invite guests? I mean, it's a little hypocritical. Mean, this is how you do a You're sitting at your table. The doors are closed. <laughs> Maybe even locked. Depends if you're in Brooklyn or Muncie. And, uh, not locked. The doors are open. Okay. And you go to the door and you scream, and I'm sure over the years neighbors have heard your scream. And they said, oh, I need a place. And you have greeted them at the Seder. If you want to invite guests, invite them in Shul, invite them before Pesach, invite them before the Seder. In fact, it's even the wrong time to invite them because the guests are also obligated to drink four cups of wine. And at this point you have already done the first cup of wine. So what are they supposed to do? So even if we're inviting guests standing at our windows and screaming, hey, come in, come in, come in. We're looking for guests, we're looking for entertainment, we're looking for stimulation, and we want to feed you, do it in the beginning of the Seder. Do it before Myrim, do it before Kiddush, do it in the middle of the day, do it a week earlier, as some of you do, do it a month earlier, two weeks earlier. We're sitting already, starting the Seder, like, by the way, whoever wants to place, come now and eat. And whoever needs to do Pesach, come and eat. Why here? Then we have a third statement, again, very disjointed. This year we're here. Next year, in Israel. In Israel. This year, slaves. Next year, we're free. Which seems mamish to contradict and undermine everything that we're supposed to be doing on this night. Later in the Haggadah, we're going to say, in every generation, one must experience and imagine Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim happening in their life. God took us out of Egypt. Much of the mitzvahs of the Seder night are structured around this idea of reenacting an experience of liberty and freedom in people's life, which is the reason we drink four cups of wine and the reason we recline and the reason we eat matzah and the reason we have charoises, and the reason we have a kaira and the reason of many things we say in the Haggadah, it's in order to reenact on some level, emotionally, spiritually, physically, psychologically, symbolically, 
the experience of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. It didn't only happen 3,331 years ago. That was an exact number, by the way. It rather continues to happen on Pesach, B'chol Dor, V'dor, Chayi, V'adam, Liris, Es'atzmoi, K'ilu Hu, Yatsam, Mitzrayim. Af, Loyes, Aviseinu, Bilvad, Gol, we say, didn't only liberate our, our uh, ancestors, Af, Oisonu, Gol. So how should you begin the Seder? Shouldn't you begin the Seder by saying, tonight we want to prepare for such a moment. Instead, our opening statement is, by the way, we're slaves. Next year, hopefully, it'll be better. <laughs> next year, next year. Now, let's face it, we're after. Your whole saint is trying to undo this. So your opening, <laughs> again, first of all, the disjointed statement seems strange. Just like with the matzah. We speak about a different matzah than we're going to speak later. Then we start inviting guests. And then we say, and by the way, one more thing. We're slaves, we all know it. Hopefully next year things will change. Okay, so let's go to sleep. And he say, no, the whole night you have to be noble and free. You're a free person. What's this tension going on? And this is how you begin the story. Mainly you'll put it in somewhere at the end and you say, yeah, we know that we're slaves, but we're trying to be free. This is how you open the story of the Haggadah. First of all, we're going to talk about the bread that they ate in Egypt. Nothing to do with liberty. Then we're going to invite guests who are either supposed to be or are not coming anyway. And then to give a summarization, next year maybe things will be better. This year we're still in a state of slavery. Okay, time for the Manishtana. This is really the introduction, the premise. This is the opening statement of the Seder, which seems to contradict every major theme of the Seder which seems to be disjointed, which seems to be out of place here, and which also seems to be lacking the theme of the Seder, and in many ways actually undermining it. And what would be missing if we wouldn't say it? You do karpas, break the matzah, kindalach manashtana, let's go. Tell the story, you finish telling the story, and then you do what you do and you move on. Similar to these questions you can ask on almost every single paragraph of the Seder. The Seder means order. One of the texts that from an external point of view seem like the most disjointed texts in the world is which text? Nobody's going to answer. It's called Seder, order. If you ever have the time or the mental space to analyze the order of the text of the Haggadah, at first glance, it seems very, very disjointed. Go through paragraph by paragraph. We start over that we were slaves. Okay. Now I would like to hear the story. No, no, no. We're going to go to Bnei Brak now. In Bnei Brak, yeah, they spent a whole night discussing it. Okay. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. Bnei Brak, they discussed. And it was Krishna. Okay, now we go. Baruch HaMok. Now let's bless Hashem for giving us Torah. I'm a slave in Egypt. By the way, there are four children in our family. It's mamish almost, you'll forgive me, like women having a conversation by lunch in a coffee shop. You know what I mean? And men go crazy. Our brains shut down. Can we finish one topic? Right? You all know my Marshall waffle spaghetti. You saw it on WhatsApp, I'm sure. I'm not going to do it again. Uh, I also don't have WhatsApp, but they say it went over, it went down, it went viral, okay? 
It's what the Haggadah sounds like. We've been slaves in Egypt. Okay, could you tell the story? No! And by the way, if God wouldn't have taken us out, we would have still been there. And by the way, if you think you're smart, you still have to tell the story. Why don't you say the story? My sin, let me tell you about Omer ben Azariah, by the way, you have to mention Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim at night too. Really? You just told me we were slaves. Can you tell the story? Baruch HaMakayim Baruch Hu Baruch There's four children in our family. Really? Wow. Is this an organized conversation? Now let me tell you about my four kids, okay? Let me tell you about my four kids, okay? We've already dealt with like 80 topics. It's not a coffee lunch conversation. Okay. Okay. We finished. By the way, Yachal Meirish I don't even know why we're doing the Seder now. We should have done it on Rishchaydish Nissen. Why are we doing it now? Okay, fine. We decided to do it now. By the way, Baruch Shemra after Chasli Yisrael Hashem, thank you for keeping your promises. That was very nice. And by the way, in every generation, they're trying to kill us. Did you know that? It, uh, we start, I'm a slave in Egypt, Vosville still. I know they're trying to kill us. Okay, you know what? Let's talk about Lavan for a moment. We didn't speak about Lavan. Why aren't we talking about Lavan? Isn't tonight the night dedicated to Lavan? So here we go. Arami Ovid Ovidu was this guy. Love. Where does Lavan come into the picture? I don't know. What do you want from Lavan? They say it's the beginning of the story. We just reminded ourselves to go back to the beginning of the story. You could do this with the whole Agada. Look, chapter after chapter, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. There's a structure here that is very, very difficult to decipher. Extremely difficult to decipher. And uh, one day we're going to have to go through it. <laughs> piece by piece by piece. And see really what the Seder is. Because the funny thing is, you call it Seder. <laughs> Seder means order. It's supposed to be the most orderly evening. When usually nobody knows if they're coming or they're going. Which is why there's always somebody at the end of the table. Are we holding Dayenu yet? Of course, Day Dayenu. There's usually somebody after five minutes, they're always up to Dayenu. You know that character? Yeah, there's people who start with Dayenu, Day Dayenu. And as it moves on, the chaos only gets stronger. And it's a difficult, difficult theme. And it goes from one to the other, and then we start pouring the wine, and then ten makas, and then they decided it's not ten makas, it's fifty makas, it's two hundred and fifty makas, it's five hundred makas. Also an interesting argument, like what's wrong if it was ten plagues? No, that's not good. We want fifty, we want a hundred, we want two fifty, we would like four hundred, five hundred, much better. Five. Okay, now that we know there were five hundred plagues, now it's time to do the ilus, the dayenus. Then we do alachas kama vekama. You have done all these great things for us. You've taken us out of Mitzrayim and you've done this and the desert and the man and the Har Sinai and the Torah. And finally, you brought us into Eretz Yisrael. You brought us into Eretz Yisrael. And as we go through all these steps, what you did, we understand it's all part of the Exodus. You took us out of Egypt, but then you took us through the sea, and the sea was dry, and then you gave us the man, and then you gave us water, and then you drowned our enemies, and you brought us to Arsina, and you gave us the Torah, and you gave us the man. We go through the 15, the 15 Dayenus. And then finally, you enter Eretz Yisrael. And after that, we would see, we would see, it would stop. Because, the Exodus is complete. But then he adds one last thing. 
Uvana Lanu as Beis Abchira. He built for us the Beis Abchira, Lechaper Al Kolavainaiseno, to atone for all of our sins. Once you're in Eretz Yisrael, you're there. You don't mention anything else after, but one thing. He built the Beis Hamikdash. And it's not called Beis Hamikdash here. It's called Beis Abchira. Another interesting thing is all the other chasadim, all the other grace acts of kindness are never given with a reason. He took us out of Egypt. He split the sea. Why did he split the sea? Figure it out. He gave us the man. Why? Figure it out. He gave us the Torah. Why? Figure it out. He gave us the, he gave us Shabbos. Why? Figure it out. That's not the discussion here. One exception. He built the base Hamikdash and here there's a reason. To atone for our sins. Which is also a very strange reason. Why don't you tell the reason it says in Chumash why we build the base Mikdash? To dwell among us. It also atoned for sins. But that's like the highlight. And this is where the Haggadah ends. The Haggadah ends with this word, with these words, to atone for all of our sins. After that, we explain the matzah, the marah, the pesach, why we eat matzah, why we eat marah, why we make pesach. We pick up the second cup of wine. We thank God with halal. We make the bracha. We drink. But where does the story, where does the Haggadah end? Those words. He built the Beis Hamikdash to atone for all of our sins. The Beis Hamikdash term is not used. Beis Hamikdash is used. Suddenly there's a reason. What's the reason? Not the classic reason, but a new reason to atone for the sins. And that's the end of that God. And how does that come in here? To atone for our sins. Who's talking about sins? Suddenly we're in Yom Kippur. Maybe we start Al-Khait. Who's talking about atoning for sins? You're going through all the kindness that he did. And this is the end. That's the climax. And again, now you'll see the Haggadah shifts. We explain Pesach Matzah Marer. And we bless God, we drink the second cup of wine, but the Maggit ended right there, which is why Shabbos Haggadah, there's a minute by many to say the Haggadah before Pesach on Shabbos Haggadah, they will end right after the Dayenus Lechaper Al Kalav and Don't worry, it's no, no, no new thing to stress out about, it's fine, your husband can do it. I'm going to show you here the first paragraph and the last paragraph. And you'll see the tremendous, deep, and nuanced, profound message that the God is trying to convey, just in its opening paragraph and its last paragraph. And since on Pesach we make sandwiches, that will be the sandwich, the two sides of the sandwich. So you can appreciate the rest of it that comes in the middle as well. We won't be able to go through every paragraph and show the Seder, but I did want to point out the opening and the end, like a sandwich. The opening, Helach Ma'anya, and the end, Lechaper Bayal Kalav And it's from the questions that we can gain insight into the depth of what's going on. And in order to appreciate this, I'm going to point out the fact that on the night of Pesach, there are four thieveries, four acts of theft that happen. We are accused of thievery on four levels and four times the night of Pesach. Number one is a custom that some have rejected and some protest every year for good reason, but nonetheless has been, has become entrenched in many a Jewish home, known as the tradition of stealing the Afikaiman. Yes, there are the commentators who protested it. There are those who have rejected it and some vehemently. One of the commentators, I think the 
Arches Chaim quotes the Ma'ariyar who says that Gentiles have been circulating rumors that on the night of our freedom we teach our children to steal. And that's why he says, avoid this custom. He even says that they give a reason for it. When we left Egypt, we emptied out Egypt. We stole their, their vessels, their clothes, their jewelry. We're doing it again with the Afikaiman. But nonetheless, even though some have rejected it, the fact is that in many Jewish homes, this custom has become tradition. The children steal the Afikaiman, and they even have a source for it. The Gemara says in Psachim Koftes, on the night of Pesach, Choytfin Matzah. You grab the matzah on the night of Pesach. Rabbi Eliezer says, you grab the matzah. And there's different interpretations. What it means, does it mean you eat fast? Does it mean you move away the kaira before you eat? Like Rashi says, does it mean, as the Rambam says, you grab the matzah from each other to create fun, that the children doesn't fall, don't fall asleep? Or does it mean, like some say, that the children grab the matzah, they steal they steal the matzah. And then, of course, once they're already stealing it, they're not giving it back anymore, right? What's the point of stealing something if you're giving it back? So this morphed into the custom of wanting a prize or a handsome reward in order to get back the Afikaiman. When I was a child growing up, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds in the yeshiva, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds who were in the yeshiva, they would get for the Afikaiman, they would get a Parker pen. And all year they would walk around with, remember the Parker pens, and they would show off the Parker pen that they got for the Afikaiman. Those who were not multi-billionaires or multi-millionaires, they would get a calculator for the Afikaiman, you remember? And they would walk around all year showing off their calculator. Today, probably if you give your child a calculator or a Parker pen for the Afikaiman, I don't know if he or she will be on speaking terms with you. Today, the common price for the Afikaiman is a Lamborghini, or at least a BMW, a Toyota, those who can afford a little more, a private yacht would be satisfactory to some of your teenagers, if not at least a private jet or a 747, or at least some very, very high-end gadget. But some of us got potato chips for the Afikaiman, a bag of potato chips or a black and white or a bell. You remember the bells that they had were mamish like toxic? Yeah, those bells. Yeah, so we would get a bell for the Afikaiman, and it was pretty good. It was not bad, and we'd walk around with it till the next Pesach when we had to eat it. But uh, those who got calculators were like, Mamish, it was like, I'm telling you, the Rockefellers, the Rothschild, the, Ra- the calculators, well, you have a calculator? <laughs> so that you could, uh, you could figure out how much is uh, 9 plus 9 without knowing the timetable. So the rewards have developed, and I guess... Uh, gone through different transformations over the years. But that's the first thievery that happens on the night of Pesach. Children steal the Afikaiman, which is a difficult custom to understand. There's another thievery that happened on the night of Pesach. And that has to do with the fact that the Jews emptied out Egypt. The Pesach says they borrowed from their neighbors clay kesef, silver, gold, Shirts, tunics, clothes, beautiful vessels. Did they ever give them back? They took them. They never gave them back. They took them. In fact, the Gemara says that the Egyptians came to Alexander the Great and demanded the Jews pay back the Egyptians for everything they took that night when they emptied out Egypt. And Gviya ben Psisa represented the Jewish people and said, we will, after you, compensate 
the Jews for their work as slaves. Over many years, 600,000 people slaving away. When you pay us for that work, we will pay up everything that we took that night. But there was this accusation the Jews have emptied out Egypt. They left Egypt clean like like thieves do when they empty out a house. They leave the house clean, as they say. There's a third theft that happens, Pesach. And that has to do with how they left. The Pesach says in Parshas B'Shalach that Paroi was told that the nation ran away. The nation fled. Kivorah Ha'am, the people ran, escaped. What does this mean? What does it mean that people fled? Didn't you say they should leave? Didn't Pare wake up in the middle of the night and say, leave my nation now? Pare was frightened after the firstborn were struck down by Makas Pcheres. Pare woke up in the middle of the night and called Moshe and Aaron and said, Kumu That's not called running away. If I send you out of my country and I say, you're free to leave, please leave. That's the exact antithesis of escape. Why does it say Parai heard that the nation ran and he pursued them when he's the one who expelled them from the land? Anybody knows the answer to this? Mamish, nobody knows the answer to this? I'm just asking. So Rashi tells us, if you read through the story of Shmois Vaera, Moshe always asked for one thing and one thing only. To leave for how long? For three days. He never once said to Paro, we want to leave for good. He always said, we just want to leave three days. And Paro refused even that. Paro didn't only refuse a full departure, he refused a three-day holiday. Holiday. That condition and request never changed. Moshe said, we just want to leave for three days. So when Pari said leave, in his mind, what did it mean? Do what you wanted to do. Go for three days and come back. That's why the first three days was with full permission. But after three days, Pari, they weren't coming back. Ooh, now they fled. That's what Rashi explains. But that only begs the question. Why would Moshe do that? Why would he deceive Pari? Why not tell him the truth? Tell him, Pari, we're leaving and we ain't coming back to this place for good. Tell him the truth. Any way you look at it, it doesn't make sense. If Pari would have not been brought to his knees with the ten plagues, he wouldn't have agreed for three days either. He has resisted even allowing them to leave for three days. The only reason he agreed for three days is why? Because he was desperate. He had no choice. At that point, he would have agreed to anything. He would have agreed to unconditional surrender. Like Germany and Japan, the only reason they agreed to stop the war was not because they were nice, because they were graceful in 1945, it's because they were brought to their knees, they had no choice. The other alternative would have been complete destruction of Germany and Japan. So they agreed. At that point, they would have agreed to anything, which they did, unconditional surrender. Pari would have never agreed. This wasn't that he suddenly became nice and kind, okay? The man had literally no choice. When you got no choice, when your opponent has no choice, ask for everything. What do you have to lie to him? Tell him, Paroi, by the way, we're not leaving for three days. We're leaving for eternity. Bye-bye, my dear Zayda. Step Zayda. Bye-bye. 
And Pari would have agreed in desperation. Moshe did not do that. Moshe till the end insisted we want to leave for three days. In other words, he deceived Parai. We have an expression in Hebrew, it's called Gnevas Das, deceiving somebody. What Yaakov did to Lavan, same thing. Ran away from Lavan, they ran away from Parai. Why? So we have to explain that Moshe understood the only way to leave Egypt is through theft. Through deceiving Parai. But how can you deceive him? He's the one who's giving permission. The answer is, we have to set up a mechanism of deception. How? Tell him three days. And then when you leave for more than three days, you deceive him. In other words, it's not that he told Parai three days and therefore he deceived him. It's the other way around. Moshe knew that we have to deceive Parai. How do you deceive him? By telling him we're leaving for three days. The chicken came before the egg. The egg didn't come before the chicken. That's the third thievery. There's one more act of subtle thievery that happened on Pesach night. Or Pesach, the time of Pesach. Generations later. Something that was illegal. Something that you're not supposed to do according to the law of the land. Which is what deception and thievery means. I take something that doesn't belong to me. On the 14th of Nisan, on the 13th of Nisan, Haman issued forth a decree that all the Jews should be exterminated. Mordechai pleaded with Esther to go to her husband and ask him to destroy, to obliterate the edict. She said, I can't. He hasn't invited me to his palace, to his chamber for 30 days, and if you walk in without permission, without consent, and he does not stretch out his scepter, you come out a head shorter. And I haven't been summoned for 30 days. He's lost interest in me, apparently. And Mordechai then gives his famous message to Esther, which inspires her to tell him, gather the Jews for three days and fast. I will also fast. And then I will go into the king. And she uses these words, I will enter into the king against the law. Not according to the law. And indeed on the third day, she enters into the king. He does stretch out her scepter and she remains alive and the rest is history or actually her story. Quite literally, pun intended. When was the third day? When was the third day she entered into the king? If the fast happened, you'd gimel. So there's yud gimel is the first day of the fast, yud dalit is the second day of the fast and the third day of the fast is tesvav. First day of Pesach, the third day, she enters into the king without permission. She makes her way in illegally. She was not invited. She went into a place that she was not allowed to go into. She went into a private domain which she was not welcome. She trespassed. Trespassing is a form of thievery. Trespassing is, I'm not allowed to go into your domain, I'm not allowed to go into your property, and here it was, at the stake, at the, with a danger, she may have been jeopardizing her very life. Pesach, she walks in Ashaloi Chadas. Four dimensions of thievery. Some steal the Afikoiman, the Jews emptied out Egypt, never to return the jewelry and diamonds and pearls and gold and silver and clothes and Vessels that they have taken. Paroi was deceived by Moshe. Moshe stole his mind. And Esther trespassed.
into the private domain of the king, where she was not welcome or invited, which usually could have translated into a death sentence. There was another act of thievery that happened on Pesach. Anybody knows number five? Another act of thievery. Somebody significant stole something significant on the night of Pesach. Huh? One more person. Very good. Yaakov's, the blessings designated to Esau. Rivka tells Yaakov, go bring your father two goats. Rashi says, who eats two goats? Two goats. What does Rashi answer? Carbon Pesach and carbon Chagiga. This was the day before Pesach. Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, Perik Lamed Beis, says that Yitzchok told Esau, tonight the gates of the heavens are open. I want to bless you tonight, the night of Pesach. And that's when Rivka prepared the food and dressed up Yaakov like Esau and told him, go in and take the blessings. And Yaakov took the blessings that were designated to Esau. In fact, when Yaakov leaves and Esau comes in, and Esau says, here's the food, bless me. And Yitzchak says, Your brother came deceitfully and took the blessing. Bemirma is made up of five letters. Bez, Mem, Resh, Mem, He, numerical value of Bemirma is Bez is two. Mem is 40, Resh is 200. Another Mem is 40. And He, that's 287. The same numerical value as the word Afikoiman. Because what happened was, Esau tells Yitzchak, eat my food too, and then you'll bless me. And Yitzchak says, Ba Your brother already brought me the Afikoiman. We don't eat after the Afikoiman. I can't eat anymore to bless you. Yitzchak ate the Afikoiman already, and that's why Yaakov brought him wine. Why did he bring him wine? Never asked for wine. The night of Pesach, a Jew drinks wine. So he brought he brought Yitzchak wine, and not one cup of wine. Lo yayin, there's a merchach fula, a unique uh, cantillation. Vayave, lo, he brought him numerous cups of wine. Vayayin, vayesht, the night of Pesach. Yaakov steals, or ostensibly steals, the blessings from his brother Esau. What is going on here on the night of Pesach? Everybody turned into Ganovim. Everyone is stealing. Of course the children are stealing the Afikaiman. They learned from everybody else. Yaakov, Moshe, Esther, everybody. What do you want from the kids? Kids are just emulating what the parents do. What is going on here? Ksav <laughs> Seifer writes, the Micht of Seifer writes something interesting. He says, the Gemara says, don't live in a city where dogs don't bark at night. Because the thieves will steal everything. What protects a city from thieves is the dogs barking. The night of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, it says, No dogs were barking. So the thieves were free to roam around freely and steal everything. Why? The dogs weren't barking. The dogs were the, dogs were the ancient alarm, alarm sounding systems. The burglars enter the homes and the alarms go off. The dogs bark. But that night the dogs were... Shashtil. So the Ganovim were everywhere. 
So to commemorate that, we're also stealing. The dogs are quiet, and the Ganovim wake up. In the middle of the night, they love it, no dogs. You want to know where this class is heading, right? How am I supposed to get out of this whole mess? <laughs> this whole web. But the truth is that all of this really captures the soul of the evening. The soul of Pesach, the soul of the Seder. Because in the journey from enslavement to freedom, in the journey from trauma to recovery, in the journey from pain to joy, in the journey from brokenness to wholesomeness, in the journey from subjugation, bondage, enslavement, to freedom, liberty, emancipation, in the journey from ignorance to wisdom, from cluelessness to awareness, from detachment to attachment, in the journey from alienation to alignment, in that journey, which is the essence of the Seder, and the essence of Pesach, and the essence of Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim, the exodus of Egypt. Mitzrayim coming from the word Meitzar. Meitzar means that which contains you, confines you, restrains you, limits you. That which holds you down. It's the handcuffs that we have physically or emotionally or psychologically that tie us down. They're the shackles, the ropes that tie one down and keep them earthbound, and not just earthbound, but bound, and limited, and restricted, and confined within a particular orbit of trauma, or of deep sadness, or of deep depression, or of deep fear, or insecurity, anguish, or jealousy, or frustration, or envy, or alienation, etc., 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 Every person can apply the appropriate adjectives as they are suitable to my life or your life or our life. That journey is an incredible journey, but it contains one great challenge. And the challenge is an inner voice. And the inner voice is always brief, concise, and razor sharp. And the inner voice speaks, and it speaks four words, if I had to say it in Yiddish, and that is, Dubist Aganev. You're a thief. That's the voice that lurks in the left side of your heart as you attempt to leave Egypt and embark on a journey towards freedom. A voice inside your head that says four words. You are a thief. Or worse, that wouldn't be so bad. The voice says, I am a thief. The voice speaks in first person. The voice represents itself as you. The voice sees itself and portrays itself as the very essence of who you are. And the voice informs you at every step, you're a thief. This is the voice of Paroi living in every person's heart, or many people's hearts. And when you're about to leave Egypt, and you want to say goodbye to the trauma, goodbye to the brokenness, goodbye to a life 
that kept you hostage to your worst demons, skeletons and ghosts. Para is there, tapping you on your shoulder and saying, you're running away, you belong right here. You're running away, you're a thief. You belong right here in my Egypt. This is your home. This is your womb. This is where you feel safe. This is where you ought to live, breathe, and die. No, I want to leave. Person, I know. But this is your place. You are a slave. You belong in slavery. You know that. You're messed up. You got too much toxicity. You went through too much as a little girl. Don't compare yourself to free people. You were destined to be a slave and will make the best out of it. You can eat some sushi as a slave. You can even have some Chinese food. If you want, you could binge on Ragalach, Kashala Pesach. Macaroons and lady fingers will give you as well. Schmerling chocolate can also work for you. That's fine. But remember, you were born to be a slave. You left. You ran away. You fled. You never got permission. You never got permission. You got permission for a three-day holiday. You got permission. You could breathe, but you got to come back here. This is your place. This is where you always were, and this is where you will always be. If the voice was coming from outside of you, it wouldn't be so bad. The problem is, Pare lives inside. And it's this voice that obstructs and blocks the pathway of countless human beings towards a life of true wholesomeness, of true celebration, of true alignment, of true inner contentment and meaning. It's the fact that there is a brokenness in me that always craves to define my core and thus accuse me of being a thief. What does a thief do? A thief takes things that don't belong to him or her and we look at the thief and say, give it back, Ganev. You have taken the silver and gold from Egypt. You have taken all the sparks, all the... All the pain that you had in Egypt also had sparks of opportunity. You've taken it. And Egypt says, you're a thief. Bring it back. You have left Egypt and Paris says, you're a thief. You have taken the Afikoim on the matzah of liberty. And somebody says, you're a Ganev. Liberty does not belong to you. You have stolen it, thief. Give it back. Ace of screams, these blessings don't belong to you. You know that. Your life was supposed to be cursed. Your life is supposed to be a perpetual kvetch. Your life is supposed to be a life in which you look at myself and say, me, I equal being messed up. I am toxicity's best friend. I am 
emptiness's best friend. I am the devil's colleague. I am depression's next door neighbor or even living together. That's who I am. I represent despair, sadness, resignation. If you would only know what lurks in my brain, if you would only know my challenges, my struggles, if you would only know my past. Yes, I know I come to a Tuesday class and I smile. I come to the bar mitzvah and I smile. I come to the wedding dressed up nicely. I make the sheva brachas and I seem full of grace. But the voice always tells me, you're just dressing up. You're just, that's what thieves do. They're camouflage. They're not real. What does dressing up mean? It doesn't belong to you. It's not who you are. You're decorating something to look a certain way. But you know the truth, the truth. You're a slave who belongs in Egypt. And it's that voice that keeps so many of us in our own Egypt. We do not know how to celebrate our own core wholesomeness, even in the presence of somebody screaming, I'm a thief. Because often, our expectations of emancipation are what? Free at last! Free at last! There's no Paris screaming. There's no Egypt screaming. Perhaps you can reach that one day in life. We call it the Messianic era. When Yeshaya says, by the future Gula, Jews won't rush. They're going to go very calmly. But Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, they had to run. They had to rush. Why? Who were they running from? Who were they running from? They were running from the voice within themselves who said, you don't belong there. You've got to come back. And if you don't have the courage to escape and tell Pari, yes, I am escaping you, you or I could remain forever in his shackles. You can take the Jew out of Golos. You can't always take Golos out of the Jew. You can take the Jew out of Egypt. You can't always take Egypt out of the Jew. You can take the Jew away from Pari. You can't always take Pari out of the Jew. And the Pari inside pursues them outside. And the Pari inside tells them, you're not really outside, you're still inside. So you may be communicating with yourself, you may be communicating with God, you may be communicating with your spouse, you may be communicating with your child, you may be communicating with a friend, with a therapist, with a colleague, with a sibling, with a loved one, or with anybody. And suddenly within that communication you feel so much toxicity, so much anger, so much brokenness. And what does that voice tell you? You don't know how to be in a relationship. You're a lonely person and you will be lonely for eternity. All you can do is make a show. You're just too broken. That is the voice of Pare telling you, you're a thief, you don't deserve better. Who am I to be wholesome? Who am I to be happy? Who am I to be gorgeous? Who am I to be successful? Who am I to be powerful? Who am I to have an awesome life? Who am I to have a free, liberated, emancipated life? Who am I? I'm a loser. I'm a shtik chametz. I'm a shtik pare. I'm a slave. That's who I am. And suddenly when your spouse or my spouse or my child or this person says something, 
And it triggers all that brokenness. And suddenly you find yourself furious and angry and broken and mad and overwhelmed. And all that toxicity comes up. And you want to blurt it out and run away to New Zealand or better to Antarctica. Where the penguins and the polar bears will understand you. And the seals will look at you without judging you. Because nobody around here can look at you that way. And you want to run for your life. And Pyro says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just come right back into Mitzrayim. Your bosom where you'll feel comfortable. At that moment, you have to make a choice. Am I free or am I a slave? And that choice is the choice that will define the entire course of your destiny. And the entire course of your future. There's only one who could make that choice. And it's you yourself. Not the circumstances around you. And the tragedy is when you allow the pare inside of you to make that choice rather than your divine inner core making that choice. And that's the choice every person has to make on the night of freedom. It's not a choice between enslavement and freedom. That's the mistake we make. That choice I will lose every Pesach. It's a choice between listening to the voice of slavery inside of me or listening to the voice of freedom inside of me, even when both voices exist, and sometimes the voice of slavery is louder, because I've been listening to it for 35 years. And whatever you've been listening to for 35 years is loud. And the other voice is very, very subtle. But it's real, it's authentic, and it's really more powerful, because it's truth. It's your truth. So comes the night of Pesach, and you sit down at the Seder, and on a very practical level, and here we're going to do a little exercise for this year, Pesach. Okay? I'm not going to have you breathe or close your eyes, don't worry. You could do that in your own time. The first rule is, you're not allowed to come to the Seder like a shmata. You're not allowed to. It's forbidden. The most important mitzvah of Pesach is serenity and joy. Just like you're not allowed to have at your Seder chametz, right? And you'll do anything not to have chametz at your Seder. You'll sit all night and, and wash and rub under the refrigerator even though dust is not chametz and the children are not the carbon Pesach. There's something that's also forbidden to have at the Seder table and that is a mother or a wife who feels like a shmata. You're not allowed to. It's forbidden. So you'll tell me, yeah, Rabbi Waiwai, very nice of you to say. You're a man, you're clueless, you're detached. You don't know what's happening, you know what's coming to my... I got it, or I didn't get it. <laughs> but just like all of you are miraculous people who know how to multitask 1.2 thousand jobs and know how to be there for every child and every grandchild and every yachna and every situation, and you're dealing with chametz, and you're dealing with matzah, and you're making more, and some of you are squeezing orange juice, and you're baking cake, and you're cooking sugar, and you're sifting salt, and you're preparing a seder for who knows how many people. I'm going to ask you to add one more thing on your list, and that is <laughs> and that is to be able to be in a state of serenity, of relaxation, of joy, if it means taking a nap, take a nap. If it means taking a walk the night before, the day before, the hour before, take that walk. 
if it means doing exercise, if it means doing a certain treatment, a certain therapy, an aroma, massage, every person knows what they need best. You come to the Seder with a, in a happy, serene state. That's the first mitzvah. My parents' home, there was a beautiful piano, Grand Marquis piano. So once, like 10 minutes before Lichtsen and Erev Pesach, I sat down at the piano and I started to play. My neighbor, this was in Brooklyn, so your neighbor like lives in your dining room. Our windows are open, I'm playing the piano. And he, tur- he opens his dining room window. He says, why, why? He said, do this machine, I'm running away like a, I'm running like a chicken after kaporis without a head. You ever see the chickens run around? Nothing is done. And you spills me the piano. You're playing the piano. I don't understand you. I smiled. I said, I don't understand you. You know, Pesach is man It's the time of liberty. I'm the one who's doing the right thing. I'm preparing with music. I'm preparing with serenity. And I want you to stop for a moment, take a deep breath. And remember, this is about experiencing your freedom. It's about experiencing your oneness with yourself, with your loved ones, with God. You're allowing the details and the rituals to destroy the essence of the holiday. You're not here, you're not present. You're not living in God's space, you're living in some religious, ritualistic, institutionalized pressuresome, stressful, indoctrinated experience which is devoid of God and meaning and truth. You're not in the spirit of things. He stopped. He stopped. And he said, you're right. This is a window screaming at each other through the windows. Years later, he met me. And he says, every Erev Pesach in the afternoon, I remember. I remember the conversation. And I start playing piano in my mind. So I start playing piano in my mind. And let me tell you, sometimes we want everything to be perfect. And you try so hard and everything is ready for Pesach. But the most important thing you don't bring, and that is yourself, your mood, your presence, your life, your radiance, your love, your relationship. You brought everything. You brought every conceivable type of food so your kids don't complain about how horrible Pesach is. But the most important thing that they need is the feminine presence of energy and life and love is not there. I say, cancel out some other things and focus on that. Here's step two in the exercise. People sit at a Seder. And they have tremendous expectations what it's supposed to look like. A guy told me he bought 40 Haggadahs to prepare Torah. The next day I see him, it looks like a dead man walking. Say, Yankel Vasagashen. So they weren't interested. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, no kidding, I also would not be. <laughs> he said, I had Torah, I had 40 Haggadahs, unbelievable, brilliant stuff. They weren't interested. It killed his Pesach. You know why? He had an expectation of the Seder. Now let me tell you the rule of life. God does not live in expectations. God lives in reality. 
You will always find happiness where reality is. You will always find love where reality is. You will always find depth where reality is. The mitzvah of Pesach is Vigada Speak to your child, not to yourself. Speak to your child means I have to connect to my children exactly where they are. A Seder doesn't have to look a certain way. A Seder doesn't have to be perfect. Perfect's Dorim run away from. A Seder needs to be a place where parents sit in their full presence, connecting emotionally to their children, sharing with them the story. How do you share with somebody the story? By tuning in to where they are right now. The worst thing speakers do is... Don't learn who their audience is. People get up to give speeches, they don't know who their audience is. The first thing I ask when I'm invited to speak somewhere, tell me who my audience is. Who is the audience at the Seder table? Your child. Before you speak to your child, find out who your audience is. If you don't know your child, how could you speak to your child? Know who your child is. And whoever your child is, that's who your child is. That's where the Shechina is. That's where you connect. People sit down at the Seder the table, they're about to give all this beautiful Torah. This one is saying Torah from the Chesam Seifer, this one from Reb Tzadik, this one from the Baal Shem Tev, this one from Reb Akim Eger, this one is saying Abris Kerov, and this one is saying ah, this Haggadah, that Haggadah. There's hundreds of Haggadahs. And then Chani and Yankee got into a world war quarrel. Because he took her becher, so he pours out her wine, so she breaks the matzah, and your husband worked on his kaida for an hour and a half, and everything was perfect. And suddenly, trach, boom, the marrow flew here, the charoises is in the fan, the wine is on the chair, your new dress for Pesach now is ruined, because it was red wine, of course. And you look and you're saying like, who invented this religion? Just tell me. Who invented this version of liberty? We used to think liberty means go to the beach, sit there for a week and do nothing. You can listen to my classes. <laughs> Who invented this? And it's like, guy tells me, he's like, I want to tell you guys of art. Boom, the wine right on his thing. There went his vart and there went his seder. And I tell you, don't let that happen to you. That's exactly where the seder happens. The seder happens in the reality of your family, in the reality of your home. And that's exactly where God is. He's not anywhere else. That's where freedom happens. Freedom doesn't happen on mountain peaks and utopios on the top of the Himalayas. Yes, there is a Chabad Seder in Nepal for 3,000 Israelis. And trust me, there's chaos there too. When my friend Rabbi Lipschitz and his wife do a Seder for 3,000 people. 3,000 people, okay? You're already getting stressed out for them, right? (laughs) Mrs. Lipschitz is the calmest woman in the world. 3,000 people at the Seder, big deal. Nepal, you can go, Nepal. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's around the corner from Wesley Kosher. And an 18 hour, and an 18 hour flight. <laughs> G- 
God is in your Seder. The, the uniqueness of the Seder is not that it's orderly. There's nothing orderly about it. It's that that's where Seder happens. Seder doesn't happen in a world that's perfectly orderly. Seder is what we create in a world that could be chaotic by identifying the core order that our soul has when it's aligned with the source of all. So if my child is right here in this place, this is where Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim happens. Take a deep breath, relax, and be fully present to the person that this child is, to the person that your daughter is, your son is, to your wife, to your husband, to your father, to your mother, to your brother, to your sister, to your guest, and especially to children. Especially to children. I got an email a few days ago from a woman who said that she's a grandmother. They're going to have 20 grandchildren saying the Manashtana. So why does she write to me? She wants me also to say the Manashtana at her Seder to be 21. The answer is her husband is before before midnight. Plus he has to be in shul early the next day. And have 20 people to say the Manashtana. And there's a whole Haggadah afterwards. What is my advice? No. I don't know why I'm the address for this question. What type of advice can I come up with? So I thought about it. I actually thought about it for two days. <laughs> I didn't only think about this for two days. Got another 300 emails about Pesach. But it was one of the things I thought about. And yesterday I answered, I said, I could just give you my humble suggestion for whatever it's worth. Each one of these 20 grandchildren, when they say the Manashtana, you and your husband should be standing or sitting right near them. They shouldn't just be in their place. Either you go to their place or they come to your place. You hold their right hand and your husband should hold their left hand. And when they say the Manashtana, be attentive fully to them. Look at them, be present Listen to them. Let them feel it by your holding their hands and let them see it from your gaze and your presence. Because each one of these grandchildren are yours. These are your gifts to God's world. You're responsible for them. You raised your children. They're yours. Appreciate the moment. They're part of a Jewish family. They're continuing the story. You have heard the Manishtana 1.1 million times. But it's your grandchild saying the Manishtana this year, Pesach. It never happened before. Your grandchild is continuing the story of the Jewish people from the Exodus, which happened 3,331 years ago. When you finish all the 20, and each one should get exactly the same shriek, but even if it's difficult, and a part of you will say, this is boring, this is monotonous, that's fine. I was talking for him more than for her. Grandmothers could smile 20 times. For grandfathers, after 10 times, they need Hatzalah. <clears throat> you know what I mean? It's like I'm plotting at this point. For Babas, it's a little easier. We're not going to discuss the reasons at the moment. Okay? I said, and after that, you can go through the Haggadah much faster. So he could finish the Afikoyman before Chatzais. Remember, the focus is the child. And each child feeling the nurture, feeling special, feeling indispensable, feeling unique, and most importantly, feeling the bond, feeling the presence. What does that look like in your house? Whatever that looks like in your house, that's the perfect seder. There's no 
perfect model. Our Seder went for seven and a half hours. You were talking to yourself and to the walls. There's no model Seder. The Seder is reality. Where God is is where reality is. Where your children are, where you are. It's heart to heart, face to face, soul to soul. And the truth is also with yourself. I sit down and I say, I know how to do a Seder. I know how to be free. I've been trying to do the Seder, you know how many years? 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. It's always the same schlep. Stress, 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 stress. Purim is a day of joy, and we're stressed with Shalachmanes, and Pesach is a day of liberty, and we're slaving away. Wonderful version of joy in Judaism. Purim Shalachmanes to 100,000, 189,000 people. Everyone who was a classmate of mine in Beis Yaakov 89 years ago, and I can't send an orange in a Hamantash Chas Shalom because it's not classy. I need a theme. You ever heard that? I didn't know that. That a Shalachmanes has a theme. I used to hear that you need food. I didn't know, but I guess food also needs a theme. Okay. I used to think an orange and a hamantash, a bottle of wine, not better. But fine. So that's the, and now freedom comes slaving away. I'm slaving away. You sit at the Seder, you come, can stand on your two feet. You ever see? They sit down at the Seder, everybody's sloughing. <laughs> used to be at the wake up the kids. Now the kids are up. The adults are sloughing at the Seder. <laughs> everybody's overwhelmed and exhausted. I tell you, your hidur of Pesach, this Pesach should be your hidur. To be alert, to be happy, to be serene and presence. So I tell myself, I don't know how to do a seder. You think God is listening to my seder, he's interested in my God, my matzah, my mara, my journey to freedom. There's the voice of Paro, he says, you're a ganev. The matzah doesn't belong to you, the seder doesn't belong to you, freedom doesn't belong to you, happiness doesn't belong to you, confidence does not belong to you, wholesomeness does not belong to you. Being in a relationship that is full, with full presence and full life, does not belong to you. You have stolen it. Give it back, you slave, you loser. We know the truth. And that's when you have to make a choice. That's when you have to make the choice. Who's going to win tonight? Is it going to be Paroi? Or is it going to be Moshe Rabbeinu? And in order to teach this to people, the Haggadah opens up with this paragraph. Hey, lachma anya, the achalu avasana ba'ara de mitzrayim. This is the bread of poverty that our forefathers have eaten in the land of Egypt. What an anticlimactic opening to the night of freedom. And contradictory to what it says later. No, you sit down to the Seder, there are huge questions that come up. And the question is as follows, if God took us out, why are we slaves? If people do things, people are limited, they're mortal, they're finite, so their deeds have limits. But if God is true, if it's a night of liberation, if God took us out, why are we slaves? And if the Jews came out with such great wealth, why are there so many poor people? Physically or emotionally. What happened? We, who went wrong? Who went wrong? And why is it that at this Seder, there is slavery inside of me? Why is there a slave inside of me right now? And then we read stories of tzaddikim, of how they did the Seder. You ever read these stories? They sat down, their faces were aglow, as they experienced Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. 
And I know a lot of men, they try to emulate these people. And it's like such an achmanas on them. Because for them to emulate these people, they have to do one of two things. Either complete denial of who they are, or complete amputation and repression of who they are. Which is really the same thing, you deny, you repress, you amputate, or to become completely delusional about what spirituality is. Completely delusional. And they think that those tzaddikim were as miserable as they are. And they think that that is what joy means. You know when you're miserable and you feel that this is what it means to be joyous, you never have a benchmark of what joy is. And I mamish want to hug them and tell them the way you get inspiration from tzaddikim is not by copying anybody. You never get inspiration by copying anybody's life. You gain inspiration by learning how to find God where your life is now. We came out of Egypt, but a part of us has Egypt inside of us. Kibarach Ha'am. Pare says, you're a Ganev. You're a Ganev. Comes the night of Pesach, and Esther wants to come into the Hamelech, to the king. And the Gemara, Medrash says, whenever it says Hamelech in the Megillah, who does it mean? It means Hashem. And there's somebody by the door saying, you're going into the king? Are you a joke? The king is not interested in Esther. 30 days he's not interested in you. Esther, you used to be appealing. You're not appealing anymore, Esther. What does Esther say on the day of Pesach? I'm going to come into the king illegally. Illegally! Why does she say this? Because the legal authorities in your heart say, you don't belong by the king. You're an outcast. That's fine. That's fine. I do things that are illegal on Pesach. Pare says I'm a thief. Esav says I'm a thief. They're screaming the Afikoyman is a theft. The jewelry of Mitzrayim. I'm good. Turn to Pare and say, you want to call me a thief? Pajalaste. Labriut, Sugazont. How do you say that in English? Be my guest. But you may be my guest. Don't be my master. <laughs> be my guest, not my master. This is the bread of poverty that they ate in the land of Egypt. In other words, even though they left Egypt and they ate matzah, it's still called the bread that they ate in the land of Egypt. Because even as they left, there's a piece of Egypt that we have within us, and it's not here to discourage us. It's here to encourage us, to explain to us, freedom does not mean that you don't have Mitzrayim. Freedom means that you identify the Mitzrayim and you choose who you really are. You understood what I just said? And that's why we say, that's why, Kindalach, I had to invite guests yesterday and before yesterday. You're not inviting them now. You're explaining why there's poverty in the world. Why are there needy in the world? God took us out. Where did the poverty come from? If Hashem is eternal, He's not mortal. And the answer is that that freedom was the beginning, not the end. Hashata Avdin. Really? We're slaves this year? So why are we doing a Seder? That's what the Seder means. The Seder doesn't mean that there's no part of me that's enslaved. 
If you're waiting for that Seder, you will never experience a Seder. Which is why so many people feel frustrated and disappointed. And they finish their Seder and they're like, eh. another one bites the dust. Liberation doesn't mean that there's a part of me that's not enslaved. Hashata Avdin. There's a part of me that's a slave. There's a part of me that's broken. There's a part of me that's a slave to addiction, to fear, to insecurity, to sadness, to brokenness, to frustration, to resignation, to despair, to yish, to melancholy, to sadness, to bad habits, to mishagasin, to trauma, to idiosyncrasies, to narcissism, to hedonism, to all types of crazy insanity that lives in me. I'm talking about me, not about you. Don't worry, don't take it personal. But if you have to take it personal, then take it personal. Hashat Avdin, we're on a journey. You go through the whole Haggadah. And we finish. This is very deep, but I'll say it briefly. The word is Pchira, not Beis to atone for our sins. It's exactly how the Haggadah finishes. What a beautiful ending. What a beautiful ending. What's this Pchira? Choice is the key word. Choice. Pchira. Choice. You know when you have to make a choice? If somebody offers me two jobs, one job pays $600 a week, and one job next door, same hours, and it pays... Not $600 a week, but $6,000 a week. And both great jobs, same hours, great bosses. Do you really have a choice? Unless you're tight mishiga, do you really have a choice? You can buy a house for 800 grand, three bedrooms. You can have the same house, seven bedrooms, and five bathrooms, and a little basement. Do you have a choice? <laughs> same block, same neighbors, same friends, same neighborhood. That's not choice. What's a choice? When do you have to choose? Could anybody answer? <laughs> Come, let's hear from the French. The Americans don't like to answer. <laughs> the English, the Brits can answer. Choice exists only when two things are similar. Identical. Then I make a choice. If I want to eat, if I want to uh, eat a particular food, I want to eat an orange. <laughs> and you bring to the food, you bring to the table other foods with the orange. I want to eat an orange. I need to eat an orange. If I want to eat a piece of fish, I want to eat a piece of chicken, and that's what's available. That's what I eat. I'm not choosing. Choice happens between two things that are similar or even identical. And now you have to make a choice. Why is the Beis HaMiktish called Beis HaBchira? The house of choice. It represents God's choice. It represents our choice. Choice only happens when there's two things that are identical or almost identical. You can choose this or you can choose this. And now you have to choose. And you have to choose based on who you really are. That's the summation of the whole Haggadah. We choose. And the reason we choose is because things are so close to each other. 
the voice of Parai, the voice of Moshe, could sound so eerily similar. The voice of Parai could sound so holy, so sacred, so true, so just. It's very easy to go this way and this way. It's a choice you have to make constantly. You only make choices when things can get confused. If slavery and liberty were not coexisting in a big challenge, you would never have to make a choice. The only reason you have to have a base abkhir or choices, because there is so much imperfection. There is brokenness. I have made so many mistakes. That's why there's a base abkhir. God says, I don't choose you because you're in a heavenly realm that I don't have to choose. What's there to choose? He's not choosing your soul over things that are completely unholy. There's nothing to choose. It's a completely different realm. Like somebody says, I have a choice for you. A house? I could give you a house? Or you could live in a shelter. What's the choice? It's a different realm. Pchira means two things are similar. Where does God's choice happen? God's choice doesn't happen in a realm where you're completely heavenly and free and transcendental and holy. Then he doesn't have what to choose. It is what it is. Choice happens when there's mixture. When things that are impure could seem pure, when things that are pure can seem impure. When a person is mixed in their life, you don't know what's broken and what's whole. When your brokenness suddenly becomes your king, and my brokenness suddenly rules over me, and now there's base abkhira. Now there's the concept of choice. Why do you have to choose? Because they seem so identical. They could be replaced with each other. Because I'm so used to something. Because I'm into something. And now I have to make a choice. The very word choice means it's not taken for granted. It's not simple. It's two things. There's a deliberation. I can go here. I can go here. I can go there. I can go there. Choose. One of the two ways I can go. That's where Beis Abkhira comes in. He doesn't say for the Shekhinah to come into me. That would be great. Here there's something even deeper. All types of sins, all types of distortions, all types of mistakes, all types of trauma. There is always his choice in you. That no matter what you're involved in, and no matter where you have fallen, I have chosen you. And it was a choice. It was a choice. And the reason it was a choice is, because there's so much connection, there's so much entanglement. And I have to choose consciously and actively. As entangled as you were, and you looked similar to Paroi. Sometimes I can't even recognize you. You look like a slave. I have still chosen you over that. And therefore you can choose yourself over that. And even if you say my mistakes were too big, I'll call Avoyneseino. That's the summation of the Haggadah. The beginning of the Haggadah, the summation of the Haggadah are saying exactly the same thing. Freedom happens right now, right here, in your home. With your family, in your marriage, in your relationships, with your children, in your reality, that's where true freedom happens. Have a wonderful week and a wonderful Yom Tov. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.